If you have a Bible, if we go back to Galatians chapter 3, we'll continue on there. The title of the message today is The Gift of Righteousness. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 14. And Paul writes there, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And he says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And Father, I ask that you'll open this word to our hearts, Lord, and, and we need you, Lord, uh, every minute, every day. We need your presence and the power of your Spirit in our lives. It all comes through the gift of righteousness that you've given us, and I ask you'll make that clear to us today, Lord. And, and we thank you for your presence here with us and speaking to us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So going back to verse 1 there in chapter 3, I just want to touch briefly. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And that word for obey there, where it says you should not obey the truth, is the word for persuaded. It's sometimes translated to, to believe. But it just means that you hear truth and you're persuaded to do it. And the thing we need to see is, talked about this one time, but the gospel is based on truth. It has to be based on truth. So we see that it was twisted here in Paul's day, and it's twisted today. Without truth, there is no gospel. And Paul's concerned about truth. That's a major concern. In fact, the whole Bible is concerned about truth. If you look in chapter 2, go back there. We talked about this in chapter 2, verse 5. He talks about that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And over in verse 14 of that same chapter, he says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So it's a big deal. And then he talks here again, like I said, in, in chapter three, verse one, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth or you're not persuaded anymore by the truth. He says the same thing in chapter five here in Galatians five, seven, where it says, you ran well, he tells them, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul's telling them here, he's saying, there are spirits at work through false teachers, through men, to deceive people about truth, hinder people from obeying the truth. And why is that? Why is there such a concerted effort against truth? I mean, in a sense, it's obvious, but 
Two things I want to talk about. Truth is what will save us. And truth is also what will set us free. And so if you would put something in Galatians and turn over to 2 Thessalonians, and you'll see there that truth is clearly what is going to save us here in these end times. In 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 9, it says there that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. It says, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. And why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, it says, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned. And he says it again. He said once they didn't love the truth. And here he says, who did not believe the truth, but instead it says they what? They had pleasure in unrighteousness. What we see there is our salvation, it clearly doesn't depend on experiences. Whether we're talking power, signs, wonders, or emotional encounters. People today, more and more, because of the culture we have, they're looking for the person that has the touch. Or they're looking for the person that's going to inspire them. You know, the biggest church we have in the United States, down in Texas, that church is not being led by truth. It's being led, in essence, I heard a guy say this. I this is a good way of putting it. And a lot of these mega churches, <laughs> they're being led by motivational speakers. The guy in Texas, for instance, will not talk about sin. Larry King directly asked him, of all sin, we don't want people to feel condemned and bad and all that. We don't talk about sin. It's motivational speaking is really what happens there. People want to be inspired, and they are inspired by that. The, that's why that church is big. But let me just say this. Christianity is not void of experiences. When you look at Acts 2 in the day of Pentecost, that was a big time experience that happened there, right? And when the Spirit of God is present in our midst, and it's truly the Spirit of God and His anointing, that's an experience like none other. I'm not saying that we should have Christianity void of experience. Christianity void of experience is dead religion. I came out of that. But I've known a few people that their whole thing is they're seeking anointings. They're seeking power. I'll just say they have been deceived. Maybe not now, but they have been deceived by that. Because in that whole wanting this inspiration, experience, power, everything else, it causes them to lay aside truth and pick up false spirits because of that. We need to remember because this is going to happen more and more and more that people were inspired, motivated, and fired up by Hitler. I mean, I hate to keep using him, but he is a type of the Antichrist that hadn't been that far off. Huge crowds listened to him. A whole nation was deceived by people that definitely should have known better. A whole nation, Germany, he was charismatic and led a nation to destruction. And that is the same thing that the Antichrist is going to do. The danger is loving experiences more than truth. Loving feelings, ease, comfort more than what is right. I'm telling you, the strong delusion, it's not coming. It is being poured out now. It is. It's here. And it doesn't stop at our church door. It doesn't. It's up to us to resist that. And how serious is that? <laughs> How critical is it? Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 24. He said, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders 
to deceive even the elect. He threw in there, praise God, if possible. But it didn't have that impossible. He said those signs and wonders would deceive even the elect, if possible. But it's just by the grace of God that that won't happen. And he gives this warning after he says that. So he says, see, I have told you beforehand. So those warnings are there because the elect will heed the warnings. Not to put a fear in it. It's like, oh, I hope I'm not deceived. But that means we need to use some discernment, don't we, in the days coming ahead and pray for grace. <laughs> that doesn't happen to us. And truth not only saves, which we just read there in 2 Thessalonians, but it's also what sets us free. Simple verse, John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Prayer is not going to set you free. Worship won't set you free unless they're based on truth. Only truth is going to set you free. If you're bound by sin, some besetting sin, bound in some way by the devil, healing, sin, sickness, need deliverance, and you cry out to God for deliverance, how is he going to send help? What will he send for help? He's going to send you truth, isn't he? It's going to be truth. So, you know, if you're bound by alcohol, say, drugs, addicted to pornography, just for an example, you know, the world tells you just to admit your addiction, right? You're always going to be an alcoholic. You're always going to be a drug addict. You're always going to be whatever. You can fight it, but you will never be totally free. Just suppress that urge with the, quote, help of a higher power. Well, that's not the gospel, that's not freedom. So I'm not putting down somebody if they're in AA or some kind of drug and it's helping them cope and all that. That's okay in itself. But that's not the freedom that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying you don't have to remain an alcoholic. You don't have to remain a porn addict. You don't have to remain a heroin addict. He says if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And a lot of these things... People aren't told that's caused by spirits. It's all this medical imbalance, a chemical imbalance and all that. That's not dealing with the spirit. That's not going to set somebody free. The truth, though, will set you free, won't it? And we've heard a lot of truth about occult practices. And you can't get back and mess with occult things and all of that. And somehow, all of a sudden, you're having these problems and blame it on something else other than you open the door to spirits. That's the truth. Close that door. Repent. Get yourself back right with God and God will deliver you from those things, won't he? The truth will truly set us free. And I'm saying that includes anger, fear, worry, or lying. Some people are bound by a lying spirit. The truth of the gospel shall set you free because the gospel says this. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The law never sets anybody free, but grace will, won't it? That's what sets us free. And John, he says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, trying to do better, trying to live up to what the standards God has set, never set anybody free, but that truth and grace that is found in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, it will set you free every time you submit to it. Let's turn back there to Galatians 3. So we're sinners. How are we? By nature, sinners by nature and deeds justified or righteous before God. Well, that really is the great truth of Galatians, that it's never by keeping the law or good works, but it's by faith and it's not by doing anything.
Look again what it says there in, in verses 5 to 7. He says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And he goes on in verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. His faith is what gave him that righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says there in verse 7, Therefore, Know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And that righteousness, it comes as God's gracious gift. God's gracious gift. And we have that over in chapter 1. You don't have to turn here. You can if you want. But he says in verse 6, Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel that's not grace. It's all a free gift is what we're saying. And what is that free gift? We've talked about it. I just want to say it again. Our Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life. He kept the law perfectly. Not only the letter of the law, but he also kept the spirit of the law. He was spotless outwardly, but he was also spotless inwardly. And you think about that because none of us can relate to this. He had a perfectly clean heart. Perfectly clean heart, never stained by anger. His heart was never stained by gossip, lust, deceit, or doubt. None of those things. Perfect inside and out. And when he rose from the dead, God received his holy life as perfect. Romans 1 says he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He is the only, you think about this, of all the billions of people that have lived on this earth, he is the only man that God accepts as righteous. The only one. And we're united to him, thank the Lord, that we can be, right? That he can be our head, and what are we? We are his body. So God sees us in him. And that's the only way we can stand before the Lord. He sees us as one new man. That union with him, through that union with him, we're giving this gift of righteousness. Now, the Catholics teach that it's an infused righteousness. And that's not what the Bible says. His perfect life is put on our account. So God doesn't say we've lived that. He puts it on our account as if we did. It's imputed. That's what it says. And so if you would, please turn over to Romans chapter 5. I want to look at something here. That this righteousness that Abraham received through faith is a free gift. Look in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. It says, therefore, if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and what of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation, even through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. We can see the result of Adam's sin all around us. What does it say there? By one man's disobedience or offense, what reigned? It says, Death reigns. 
And we look around as death reigns everywhere around us. It rained in Pittsburgh yesterday at a Jewish synagogue. I mean, we just hear too many accounts of things like that. But death reigns in our world, doesn't it? Poverty, sickness, famine, hurricanes, volcanoes, and war. We don't have to do anything for death to reign, do we? It's automatic. It just happens. When you're born into the world, death begins to reign in a little baby, doesn't it? Now you look a little baby, it's beginning to take its last breath, isn't it? It's dying. And you look at a baby, you think, oh, that's life. No, it's beginning to die as soon as it's born. It's headed towards death. We all are. Death reigns. Comes upon all. And you could say it, I've heard a man say it this way, and it's true. The world is just a place of cemeteries, isn't it? Ultimately, that's what it's going to be. But life is not like that, is it? Life is something that we have to consciously embrace by faith. So we don't have to have any faith to die, do we? It just comes on us. But we have to, if you look in verse 17 there, it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive. We have to receive life. Receive that abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. But it is so much greater, Paul is saying there, so much greater in its effect than the reign of death. Death reigned over us, but it says, but through the abundant grace and free gift of righteousness, it says we reign in life. Now, that's saying quite a bit there when it says we reign in life, because that word reign means to exercise kingly power, to exercise authority at a royal level. He's saying that about us as believers in life, in this life. I mean, you can just read right over that really easily. But what does it mean to reign in this life by Christ? One thing it means, I'm going to name three things. One thing it means is we're no longer living in the fear of death under that reign of death, which we were. Hebrews 2 says that all men through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And we've been set free as a Christian. You should be set free because if you are afraid of death, it is a slavish thing and it puts you in bondage and it'll keep you from exercising faith. You have to know that death no longer has a hold on us. It's no longer something we should fear. We have life, eternal life. We're not waiting to get it. And the second thing that this reigning in life means is that we have victory over sin. The Lord said to Cain in Genesis 4, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, he told him, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, he says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but he says, but you must rule over it. And guess what? As sinners, nobody can rule over sin. We could not rule over sin before. The only way we can is by this gift of righteousness and the gift of the Holy Spirit living in us. Gives us the power now to reign over sin. Romans 6.14, I quoted this earlier, but it says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. And why not? Because we're not under the law anymore. All the law did was condemn us, tell us what we should be doing, and we're not. And there was no power there to live a righteous life. And he says, but we're not under that anymore. We're under grace. And through grace, the abundant grace, he says here in Romans 5.17, that comes through the Holy Spirit, we're able to reign over sin. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And for me, that was the big deal about getting the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. When I was told about that and explained about it, the one thing was the minister that talked to me, I mean, I had tried to live the Christian life the best I knew how. I didn't know anybody to talk to. I was a Catholic. 
And I felt constantly like I was falling short, saying something I shouldn't, laughing at a joke I shouldn't, drinking one too many beers, and just, but I wanted to do, had no power, wanted to do what's right, but had no power. And when I decided, I'm going to hell, whatever you want me to do, Lord, and went and prayed that prayer with that minister that night, and we went through that, and he says, now what you need now is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because that will give you power over sin. And I'm thinking, man, I need that more than I need anything. Man, it changed my life. It really did transform my life in a big way. So does that make you perfect automatically? Obviously not. Ask my family. But I'm just saying it gave me a power over sin I didn't have before in a lot of different ways, including the fear of man. I mean, I was in major bondage to the fear of man. The life we have reigning over sin is the exact opposite of our lives before Christ. Pride, anger, jealousy, lust, fear, doubt. That doesn't have to dominate us anymore, does it? Does that have to dominate our lives to where we're like, well, we're doing the best we can? Isn't that what he says? When sin shall not have dominion over you. But also reigning in life means we're no longer under the thumb of the devil. Amen. And when the 70 returned with joy, it says in Luke 10, they said this. They told the Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And it says, he said to them, well, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he said, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, let me just ask you, based on what he told the 70 there, does that sound like the devil and his demons should have their foot on your neck and have you paralyzed? Does it sound like that? I mean, there was a time everybody amened that and really thought that was good news. It still is good news, right? It, nothing's changed. And you're saying, well, that just is for the 70. That doesn't apply to us. Well, what about James 4, 7? What would you do with that? Where James 4, 7 says what? Resist the devil and he'll keep conquering you no matter how much you resist. No. Resist the devil and he'll do what? It does say that he will flee from you. And you say, I tried that, and it didn't work. Well, let me tell you, before James wrote that, he wrote what? Submit to God. Try that first, and then resist the devil. You're going to tell me that doesn't work. I'm sorry. There's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with the Bible. There's nothing wrong with what we've heard preached. Because if you truly submit to God and then resist the devil, he will flee. Now, it doesn't say when, but he will flee. And that's what our Lord did in the wilderness. He submitted his life in all the areas that Adam failed. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then, what did he do each time? He resisted the devil. And what did the devil do at the end of that temptation? He fled. And what did he use, though? Faith in the Word of God. Wasn't that his answer every time? Faith, simple faith in the Word of God. That's, it's not complicated. But that was his big proving ground, wasn't it? Filled with the Spirit, led out into the wilderness. Peter also wrote in 1 Peter, so you don't like the 70, in Luke 10, in 1 Peter 5, it says this, Peter wrote, and this is the, his way of saying submit to God, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And then he writes, be sober, be vigilant, 
Because your adversary and my adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Does he say, lay down and be dinner? Because <laughs> maybe you've been running a long time from the devil. What does he tell you? He says, he walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He says, resist him, steadfast, not for a while, for as long as it takes. Now, if you've done the first part, humbled yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and that means, you know, you've got your heart right with him. You're submitting to him in all things, not resisting him when he's trying to deal with you about whatever it is. And he says that you can resist the devil and you need to do it steadfast in the faith and it will work. I'm telling you, it'll work. That's what Paul means. It could even mean more than that, but those are three things that it means to reign in life through Jesus Christ that we've read here in Romans 5, 17. We've lost our fear of death. That should just be a given, isn't it? When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, condemnation's past, isn't it? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No longer subject to Satan. We have dominion over sin. We can resist the devil by faith and he has to flee. It's saying here the word reign means we exercise authority at a royal level. Not because of our righteousness. Not because we're so big and bad and tough and good. That's not why, but it's because we've been freely given the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's righteousness. If you turn back to Galatians 3, it says there in... Verse 6, it's the same righteousness that Abraham received here in verse 6. Just as Abraham, it says he believed God. It comes through faith. Not something you earn, and it was accounted, put on his account, accounted to him for righteousness. And so when we exercise faith in the same Lord as Abraham, then we're counted righteous as he is. And that's why it says in verse 7, Therefore know this, that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. That therefore tells us that what Paul was talking about before the therefore is what, he's, what he means. The sons of Abraham are sons because of their faith in the crucified Son of God. That was in verse 1. And so I'm saying from Genesis to Revelation, the only way a man or woman is saved by faith in a blood sacrifice provided by God. I had it actually in one of my missionary classes. I'm like, the Old Testament saints, anyone that was saved, they weren't saved just by their faith alone. It was faith in a blood sacrifice. It's always been that way. So from Adam, there was a sacrifice made then. They were given the skins. Abel had to bring his sacrifice to Noah. Sacrifice when the ark landed. The Passover, the whole temple system, it's all a sacrificial system on the behalf of the person bringing the sacrifices. And all of those in the Old Testament pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. But for them to be efficacious, for them to work, they even then had to be done how? By faith, right? Because the just, no matter when you're talking before or after the cross, the just shall live. They'll have life by what? By their faith in that blood sacrifice. Abraham, though, we know he had that revelation. Jesus said in John 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, it doesn't say this, but I think that revelation was given to Abraham when he offered up Isaac in Genesis 22. When the Lord stopped Abraham from slaying Isaac, when he had the knife up and he stopped him at that point, 
He said this, he says, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And it says, And then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So Abraham found a ram that replaced his son Isaac on the altar, and God himself had provided the lamb. And I believe then Abraham saw in his spirit that that would be the Lord Jesus who was to come, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, his sins and the sins of the world. And it says he rejoiced to see that day because not only did that spare his natural son, but he's saying, that's the answer right there. That's the answer to my sin problem. The sacrifice that God will provide. And Paul is saying throughout chapter 3 that the sons of Abraham will receive the blessing of Abraham. And what is that? What's the other thing? This is the second thing that Paul is saying. This is what characterizes the sons and daughters of Abraham. That's what chapter 3 is about. One is they will have faith in the sacrifice that God has given. The Son of God hung on the cross, verse 1. But also in verse 14, the other thing that will characterize the sons of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham will be the promised spirit. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. And what is that blessing? That they might receive the promise of the spirit. And how do they receive that promise? Through faith. So these Judaizers, their big concern is you have got to be a son of Abraham to be saved. And they said, well, here's the way it happens. That happens by keeping the law and also by receiving the sign of circumcision, which was given to Abraham in Genesis. And Paul comes back and he says that isn't the way it happens because it comes by faith. And the sign of the blessing of Abraham is to have the Holy Spirit. We just read that in verse 14. That's the promised blessing to Abraham. Paul's argument to all this is, in verse 8, is that God knew ahead of time that the Gentiles would be justified and receive the promised Holy Spirit without the law. So he justified Abraham before he was circumcised and before any law was given. Because it was with Abraham, it is with us, it is with anyone, it's a free gift of righteousness. Look in verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 3. It says in the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, before anything, any circumcision, any law, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with faithful or believing Abraham. What does it mean to be a son of Abraham who walks by faith and the leading of the Spirit? I'm getting to something here in a minute, okay? Look in verse 3. Here is how you begin and end. Are you so foolish, Paul writes in verse 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? So sons of Abraham will begin their walk with God by faith and the leading of the Spirit because he is the one that is in control. In control, living in them. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. In other words, I am no longer in control of my life, Paul's saying, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
We're not only counted as righteous, he gives us his spirit so we can live righteous lives. It's both. It's not we're just counted as righteous and live any way we want. We know that. But 1 John 2 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And 1 John 3, 7 says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And he who sins is of the devil. So the ones that are counted righteous will also live righteous lives by the power of the Spirit. Here's the question. Do you want to be a son of Abraham? The Galatians did. All of the New Testament believers did. And the answer is not found, as we've said, by doing good works or by the law. It's by faith. Verse 10 says, For as many as of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. Trying to live by the law, all that's going to do is bring a curse on you. It's brought a curse on everyone. But, verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, and here Paul gives more scriptural evidence, for the just shall live by faith. That's how the just will always live. Verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live in them. So here's the thing. The just don't just live by the law, but by faith. They don't live by the law, but by faith. And life comes through faith. The just shall live. Life comes through faith. Trust in the Lord. It's letting the Lord Jesus Christ have control of your life. And I'm saying it all comes down, and here's what we need to hear. It all comes down to control. Who is in control? Because as sinners, we were in control of our lives. As a sinner, basically, one way or another, you're saying, I'm going to do what I want to to do. And the world thinks that they can manage things in their lives. They think they can control their anger, their lust, their economy, and their life. And that's just the way people are. They think they're in control of their lives, and especially youth. They think they can do what they want. No one's going to control me. I can work things out. And guess what? You start growing up, you start finding out, but some people never do. You start finding out that really isn't the way things work. And even sometimes us, with the message we heard, we can be control freaks in so many ways, trying to control things in our lives and others' lives and our situations without any faith being exercised. And that always ends in disaster. For instance, I've taken a couple golf lessons. And every time I take a golf lesson, they're like, are you laid back or are you uptight? I said, well, nobody's ever called me laid back. Because they're telling me, you got too much tension in your arms. I'm trying to control that club, where it's going and all that. And they're saying, you got you to gotta relax, breathe out, let all that tension go. And the, the golf club just kind of got it, but let it do its thing. It's manufactured and designed. It'll swing the right way and find the right place if you don't try to control it. And that's the way it is with our lives and walking with the Holy Spirit. What's your besetting sin? What's the besetting sin you have? Everyone probably has a different one. And we tend to sometimes think we can just grit our teeth and control it and conquer it. And I'm saying that never works. And God's telling us when you can give up control and you're willing to do that, he says, then I'll step in. When you realize you're poor in spirit, weak and helpless, and then you'll exercise faith in the power of my spirit. And in the meantime, he just say, I'm going to wait until you give up control. That's the way it's going to work. 
We've got to learn that hard lesson that we are no longer boss. Because who is to be the boss of our lives? The Holy Spirit is, isn't he? He's to be the controller. He is Christ living in us. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. That's the life we're to live now. He's in us, controlling us, guiding us, telling us to quit gossiping, resenting, and to yield to him. And instead of doing those things, to be merciful to others, forgiving, and to trust the Lord to work things out. Or you can name however other ways that needs to work. But he's telling us, it goes back to 220. It sets the tone. It's I live, yet not I but Christ lives in me. What he's saying there is, I live, but I'm not controlling my life anymore. I've given the control over to the Lord and his word. Our Lord Jesus Christ wasn't in control of his life. You think about that? Now, his life wasn't out of control, but he wasn't the one in control of it. He gave up the control of his life to the spirit of God. And we're to follow his example. John 6, 38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 5, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. John 8, I do nothing of myself, but as my father taught me, I speak these things and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. So it's not that He couldn't have had His own will. He just says, I don't have my own will. I only do what He shows me. I only say what He gives me to say. I only go where He's leading me to go. I mean, He did that 100% perfect. And in doing that, His attitude wasn't like, this is a life of bondage. I really would like to be doing something else. No, He says, I only do those things that please Him. And there was this reciprocal love that went on between him and the Father. It never stopped. It never stopped just because he came to earth. And, you know, we need to remember Jesus was a man. He was fully man. He had desires. He liked comfort like any man. There's nothing wrong with wanting comfort. I mean, if you like to be tortured and uncomfortable, you need deliverance. There's nothing wrong with that. He submitted everything to God. There might have been one day he woke up. This might have happened. I don't know. Probably not this way, but, you know, he might have thought, I'm going to have breakfast with my family, a good cup of Jewish coffee. I'm going to have lunch then, you know, with Rabbi Rabin. But that day, guess what happened? Instead, the Spirit of God, while he's praying, says, I want you to go out into the wilderness, not to eat, forget breakfast, but to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, it doesn't say Jesus chose one day woke up and chose to go to the wilderness. Does the Bible say that? It says in Luke 4, then Jesus, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he'd think, man, that's time to rejoice and be happy. It says as soon as that happened and he returned from the Jordan, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And Mark 1 is even more graphic than that. It says after he was filled with the Spirit, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And the point I'm trying to make there is he was led by the Spirit. He just didn't do whatever he wanted to do. That's easy to say and hard to do for us, isn't it? But that's really where victory will be found. It's given our lives totally over to him. His life was controlled by the Spirit, yielded control. The thing is, the same Spirit that was in him 
controlling, leading, guiding. That same Spirit is in us, not a different Spirit. You don't divide God up. It's the same Holy Spirit in us that was in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ. The life we are called to live is life in the Spirit. And really, Galatians overall, I mean, it is really contrasting life in the Spirit versus life in the flesh. That one will be the law, one brings death, but life in the Spirit, it brings life. It brings freedom. That's over in chapter 4 and 5, isn't it? The life in the Spirit makes us sons of God. The beginning of chapter 4. Those that are Abraham's will live a life of faith that's led by the Spirit through the gift of righteousness. And that is the way Abraham walked and lived by faith. He did the same thing. That's why he's the father of the faith. And we're sons of Abraham as well as sons of God and joint heirs with Christ. But he turned his life over completely to the Holy Spirit, to God and his word, didn't he? Isn't that the way, Abraham, we want to be his sons in living by faith, the just shall live by faith? As Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And it says, he went out not knowing where he was going. I'm sure Abraham, in old Ur of Chaldees, that was a very wicked place. And I'm sure he had plans and dreams and a life of sin that he was planning on living. But one day, God, by his grace, came down and appeared to him and gave him a word and told him, I want you to leave here and go somewhere that I haven't even shown you yet. And at that point, what did Abraham do? He gave off control of his life, didn't he? He quit trying to control things. And by faith, it says he obeyed God. He obeyed the Spirit's leading not knowing where he was going, just trusting in the Lord. And not only that, but he gave up control of his child. Think about that. He loved Isaac dearly, his only son. But what did he do? Gave him over to God. And what did God want to do? Wanted to kill him. So what's your Isaac? What's your sin that we need to give over to God? And let him take and kill and have control. Because it says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham had to do what with this only son he loved? His prized possession. He had to entrust him to the well-being and care of God to the point of death. Now, there is no way we all know that would not have been easy. And I'm sure he struggled with that. But we have to learn a lesson from that, don't we? In a lot smaller way. And that is, we don't have a right to control others. And we don't have a right to control our kids, our children. Now, We're supposed to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So I'm not talking about the things you do to train them and spank them. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking at some point, we need to give them like Abraham did. We need to lose control of them, don't we? And put them over into God's trust and into God's hands. Amen. I told you, there's a lot of ways we try to control things that we don't even think about. And other people manipulate other people in a lot of ways. But this thing with the kids, everyone loves their kids. That's a hard one, isn't it? 
John G. Lake, I read this, he said this, he said, I sometimes say I believe I had the hardest boys to handle that were ever born. They were strictly like the old man. He said, after a while, I saw there was only one way under God's earth to handle them. He said, one day I went off to pray and I said, Lord, God, help me to love these boys regardless of what they do or say. I had to love them in some dreadful places, some awful circumstances. They tried me to the limit on that prayer. He goes on to say, there's only one way to tie your boys to you. There is only one way to tie your girls to you. And there is only one way to be a blessing to them. But it takes so much of the grace of God. And we sometimes despair and break down. One day I said, God, I have prayed for these fellows until I am prayed up. And I just take the whole bunch and hand them over to you. I give the whole outfit to you. They are too much for me. And you know, he said, my troubles somehow dissolved. They began to disappear. And he finished with this. Sometimes we need to comprehend the bigger love, the greater heart of God's love. It is a good thing to detach your soul. Do not hold people. Do not bind people. Just cut them loose and let God's love have them. We sometimes hold people with such a grip when we pray for them that they miss the blessing. Then your humanity is exercising itself and the spirit is being submerged. Let your soul relax and let the spirit of God in you take over. And I remember he told another story of a guy that his son was wayward and he was worrying to death about him. And he finally, God dealt with him. He just says, he's dead as far as I'm concerned, Lord. He's in your hands. He's all yours. If I ever see him again, he'll be a saved person. His boy was a drunk and a mess. He was in just all kinds of trouble. One day he got a report that your son jumped off a bridge and died. He goes, that wasn't my son. And it wasn't his son. It was a false report he received. And one day he left that boy in God's hand and God got hold of that boy and saved him and brought him back like he was supposed to be. But it's because he just finally had to let go of him, just like that Jim Cimbala video that we watched. Yeah, there just comes a point all you're begging, pleading, bribing, whatever all else, trying to manipulate things. You got to just by faith, let the spirit of God deal with them and he'll deal with their heart. He's the only one that can get to a person's heart and change it. And that's really what needs to happen, isn't it? Because until that happens, they may outwardly conform somewhat, but they're still going to be lost. And really, isn't that what you ultimately want is your children to be saved? That's what I want for mine. So whether it's sin in our lives, our families, trials we're going through, we need to remember this. Thus saith the Lord to you. This is actually a prophet saying it in the Old Testament. It's not me saying it. Thus saith the Lord to you, speaking to Israel. Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Fighting our battles, all of that in our own strength, it will never work, will it? And we need to fight. So I'm not saying we don't need to fight, right? But we need to fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So back here in Galatians, it says there in verses 3 and 5, he says, Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? And all of us begin that way. Lord, I'm desperate. I'm help. I put myself in your hands. But he says, Are you now made perfect by the flesh? And we have to watch that temptation to deal with situations in our lives, no matter what it is, in the flesh. And we need to deal with things in the Spirit. He promises to work miracles in our lives. Verse 5, look what it says. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit 
to you and works miracles among you? He promises, does he do that by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He does it by faith, doesn't he? He'll do things by faith, work miracles and show power in your life, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The gift of righteousness comes to us by God's abundant grace. We read that in Romans 5, and it's received by faith. And that gift of righteousness comes to us in two ways. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ for us. We're given his righteousness. And that is no small thing. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, the perfect man, God man. We're given his righteousness. This isn't just some man of flesh. This is God Almighty's righteousness. We're given the gift of God put freely on our account. It's him for us, the gift of righteousness, but it's also the Lord Jesus Christ in us. His righteous spirit in us, living through us by the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. That's what salvation is. And that is how we should begin our Christian life and continue to live our Christian life. By faith in the power of the Spirit of Christ, which brings us to what? It'll bring us into conformity to his image. And that's God's goal and purpose for us being Christians. That we be brought into the conformity of his son. That's Romans 8. That's why we're called and elected to begin with. How do believers live? How do Christians live? How is life given and maintained? It's as simple as this. And we'll end with this. It says that the just shall live by faith. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and and we thank you for all the abundant grace that you have given us, Father, that you've opened our eyes to your word to see that all we have to do is trust in the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did and just commit ourselves to him, Lord, and we thank you that your Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts, that you've come in, invaded our lives, and opened our eyes to see our sin for what it is, and given us the gift of repentance that we can turn to you and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Everything that we need, you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to appreciate that and to walk in that, Lord, and to walk in the authority that you've given us through his blood. And that's my prayer for all of us here in Jesus' name. Amen.